0: You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. As well, you can hear these podcasts at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. There are two uh, publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 62 by Rudolf Steiner, 14 lectures entitled Results of Spiritual Research, translated by Simon Blaxlund DeLange. This is Lecture 8, given in Berlin on the 16th of January, 1913, entitled, The World Conception of a Cultural Researcher of the Present, Hermann Grimm, and Spiritual Research. It might easily seem as if what is represented here as spiritual research is quite isolated from present-day cultural life and has no connection with what otherwise occupies a dominant position in the intellectual life of modern times and, in a certain sense, sets the tone for it. However, this can appear to be so only to someone who understands this spiritual science or spiritual research in a limited, narrow-minded way and sees in it nothing more than a collection of teachings and theories. But someone who sees in it a spiritual stream that wants to receive into itself everything toward which the various trends in cultural life are leading it, will become aware that from this spiritual stream the seeds for the future development of many aspects of modern cultural life can be derived, and that this way of contemplating life known as spiritual science can be applied to other schools of thought. That have a greater or lesser affinity to it. I shall speak today about one such school of thought, which can be represented by a very notable figure in modern cultural life, namely the modern cultural researcher and art historian Hermann Grimm. Hermann Grimm, who was born in 1828 and died in 1901, indeed appears on the one hand as a quite especially characteristic example of modern cultural life, while nevertheless, being so individually distinctive, so particular a figure, that it is especially good to link today's studies with this personality. Hermann Grimm appears to someone who has concerned himself with him as a kind of intermediary between that cultural life of more recent times, which is associated with the name of Goethe, and our own modern cultural life. Hermann Grimm is connected in a quite particular way with everything that can be linked with the na- name of Goethe through his marriage with that personality who was so closely related to the circle around Goethe, the sister of the romantic poet Brentano. Thus Hermann Grimm was related, as a son-in-law, to that Bettina Brentano, who had published the remarkable correspondence of Goethe with a child, that Bettina Brentano from whom derives that unique memorial of Goethe where we see him sitting enthroned like an Olympiad, a musical instrument in his hand, and meshing a child in the strings in whom Bettina Brentano portrayed herself. It was as a child that this personality, deriving from the Frankfurt circle of La Rocha, appeared in her relationship to Goethe, and she was able to become absorbed in Goethe's spirit, as was possible for only few people. And even if so many people find inexactitudes and the letters that Bettina Brentano made known, together with a colourful mixture of truth and fiction, one must nevertheless say that everything that we have in this remarkable book, titled Goethe's Briefwechsel mit einem Kinde, has genuinely arisen from Goethe's cast of mind and gives us in a quite wonderful way an echo of it. Bettina Brentano's second marriage, was with the poet Achim von Arnim, who was involved with the beautiful collection of folk literature titled Des Knaden Wunderhorn. Through his relationship with this circle, as said, Hermann Grimm's wife, Gisela Grimm, was a daughter of Bettina Brentano, or Bettina von Arnim. Hermann Grimm had from a young age grown up amidst personalities who were really close to Goethe, and who in all that he received in his education passed on to him something like a personal and directly elemental breath of Goethe's spirit. As Hermann Grimm also felt from his early days that he belonged with all those who still stood close to Goethe, in spite of the fact that he was still a child when Goethe died. And Hermann Grimm was not like someone who has studied Goethe and Goetheanism, but he had received Goethe's being the whole vitality of his magical power and the entirety of his living human nature directly, elementally and personally into his own being. Thus Hermann Grimm had an intimate part in the evolution of German life in the middle decades of the 19th century. He participated in it in such a way that he, as it were, established his own realm within this German life. One can call him a spirit who in the most individual way, always directed his energies toward what he found stimulating, what was fruitful for the development of his own spiritual forces. By this means, Hermann Grimm carved out for himself from the full extent of cultural life what was suitable for him, a cultural sphere in which he felt at home. Within this cultural sphere in which he felt at home, Hermann Grimm recognized himself to be a kind of spiritual representative of Goethe, To him Goethe's spirit appeared as a being with a continuing existence, and where he sought the streams of what in cultural life conformed to his own inclinations and allowed them to work upon him, this was always more or less the essence of Goethe's nature, which he not only sought to become aware of, but became the measure of everything that he encountered in his intellectual and cultural endeavours. The years that Hermann Grimm lived through were decades that witnessed a struggle in German cultural life. These were decades when, after Goethe's death, the essence of his spirit withdrew to some extent, when people had to attend to many other things, which one might say more concerned daily affairs than the influences that proceeded from Goethe. In that time, when many other things had become somewhat quiet, Hermann Grimm probably saw himself through his direct connection with the being of Goethe, as a person whose task it was, quietly but also livingly, to cultivate the essence of Goethe's nature and to carry it over to a time that he surely hoped would come, a time when Goethe's star might once more shed its light more livingly in the European cultural firmament. Thus the way that Hermann Grimm regarded himself as a kind of spiritual representative of Goethe of his spiritual sphere, was somewhat characteristic of how he quite naturally dealt with cultural life, of how he related to intellectual affairs. It belonged to him as it would to an intellectual prince. Even in his outward form and physiognomy, his gestures and his old appearance, he had something of the quality of an intellectual prince. And one can say that even if one was, so to speak, unaccustomed to regard someone as having princely qualities, Hermann Grimm's whole manner compelled one to attribute to him the rank that has been characterized. Thus I still fondly recall meeting with Hermann Grimm in Weimar, where he so often and so gladly came. He had invited me as his only guest to a midday meal. We spoke about many things that affected him. We also spoke, and it was a fulfilling experience for me, that he wanted to have this conversation with me about his extensive plans as regards his intellectual life. And when a certain time after lunch had passed, he said, with his distinctive humor, but nevertheless in a wholly natural way, so that one could receive it from him as something purely as a matter of course, quote, Now, my dear doctor, I want to dismiss you in good favor, close quote. It was indeed something that at the time made upon me an impression of being the most natural thing in the world to say, because Hermann Grimm's appearance was of such a kind that one attributed to him a certain princely quality. The whole of Hermann Grimm's life's work bears something of this character. One cannot attentively read any of his larger or smaller writings without having the feeling that amidst the wonderfully harmonious and yet so precisely constructed sentences that envelop one's soul, the personality of the author is constantly present behind them, looking at one, and with an immensely personal interest, is directly imparting to one what he has to say. This is responsible for the wonderful soul quality that sounds through Hermann Grimm's writings, so that they are, in this most beautiful way, invariably the expression of his soul-filled personality, and also directly work in this way. Because of this, his whole style acquires the character of a certain justified, noble pathos. But this noble pathos is everywhere moderated by the personal element that one feels breaking forth from it. One accepts this style, in spite of its elevated quality, as something quite natural, and one constantly feels that the Goethean element is pervaded by the romantic nature of German cultural development. a certain sense of separation from everything that one can, in the broadest sense, call the everyday, the popular, a withdrawal into a single personality, a wholly individual being, a wholly individual manner of approach. This is what we sense in the style of Hermann Grimm. This tendency in Hermann Grimm's spirit might perhaps have led to a certain one-sidedness if another stream had not worked within him, in combination, which connected him so fervently with everything of a popular nature and rooted him deeply in the spirit of popular culture. For Hermann Grimm was himself the son of Wilhelm Grimm and the nephew of Jacob Grimm. These are the two men who established German linguistic research in the 19th century, the men who collected those German fairy tales that have, meanwhile, become so deeply a part of German cultural life those men who listened to what simple folk from the people related through legends and fairy tales, legends and fairy tales that had lived for hundreds of years in the minds of the simplest people and were almost forgotten before they were conveyed by a few individuals to modern times, when they were enabled to live again today through the agency of the brothers Grimm. If therefore Hermann Grimm, despite the elevated style of everything he wrote, shows something of an affinity with everything of a popular nature, we must emphasize something further that harmoniously connects an intellectual tendency that might otherwise have developed in a one-sided way with another stream, so that everything in him appears to us as a kind of inner harmonious totality. If we allow Hermann Grimm to make an impression on us, we do, after all, find a certain softness, a kind of eager receptiveness, to all the cultural phenomena with which he was involved in the course of his life. A person needs a degree of isolation if he wants to immerse himself in the facts and phenomena of many centuries of intellectual history. But this softness, additionally, acquires its skeletal aspect, its hardness in Hermann Grimm, through something else that flowed into his upbringing. His father and his uncle belonged to those Göttinger Sieben, who in 1837 lodged a protest against the abolition of the constitution of their state and were therefore dismissed from Göttingen University. Thus already as a boy Hermann Grimm experienced a deed of a rare nature and experienced this deed with manifold consequences, for there were numerous consequences for both father and uncle that extended to their daily lives in that they had lost not only their positions at that time, but also bare essentials. And Hermann Grimm frequently emphasized how he formed a connection with the impulses of history already as a nine-year-old boy, not through the book, but through a significant historical deed. Thus Hermann Grimm stands before us as a personality. He came to prominence as a kind of bearer of Goethe's spirit, at the time when matters relating to Goethe in Germany had entered into a period of relative quietness, and people had turned toward other things. But he experienced that this interest in Goethe was again restored, and that he himself could contribute much to the re-enlivening of this mood. At the beginning of the 1870s, he was able to give his famous lectures on Goethe at Berlin University, those lectures on Goethe that feature in his important book about him. And what a book this is. Anyone who acquires it as a young person and is able to relate to it in the right way can without doubt speak of it in later life as something significant. And just as it comes to expression in this book, so does Hermann Grimm appear before us as one who has the capacity to relate to Goethe, as one who has entered fully into the various aspects of his soul life. Thus he explores Goethe's works in succession, examining what passed through Goethe's own soul when he was engaged in the creation of these works. So we can listen to the way that Hermann Grimm considered such a personality as Goethe as he saw him. We find nothing resembling a search for pernickety biographical details or a pursuit of essentially insignificant aspects of his life. There is, instead, an immersion in everything in Goethe's life that was of significance and importance for his soul development. The endeavor to trace the effect of what Goethe experienced, what was working and living in his soul, how it was transformed so that it acquired certain forms, so that it became a picture, a creation of his imagination. For Goethe himself, forgetting everything about the original life experience, Reached up to that new insight that had emerged from the experience in the creativity of imagination, in the creativity of imagination which now is itself an experience. Thus, with every consideration of a work by Goethe, through Hermann Grimm's study of him, Goethe rises a stage higher in his experiences. He rises directly into a sphere of pure spiritual perception. Through each one of Goethe's works, Herman Grimm shows how Goethe ascended from his life to spiritual experience and spiritual existence. And we are always glad to accompany him on this path that he follows, because nowhere in Hermann Grimm does something happen that can so easily occur with such a presentation. That a single soul faculty, the intellect or the imagination, accompanies the observer, and one no longer feels oneself to be in contact with the life itself. No, Hermann Grimm never goes further than, but always as far as. He, as a personal individuality, can himself go, and he is therefore able to encompass the whole work. Overall, one feels that when Hermann Grimm has led one to the point where the work in question had its origin in Goethe's experience, one has been transported to a purely spiritual life. Goethe becomes, for one, a being whose inner nature is purely spiritual, a sum of purely spiritual impulses. This breath of the world of spirit extends throughout everything that Hermann Grimm presents in his book on Goethe. What Hermann Grimm directed toward Goethe became deeply rooted in his whole mental outlook. Probably a long time prior to this, When he embarked upon the studies that culminated in his lectures on Goethe, he conceived of a great idea of vast proportions, that of studying the cultural life of the West as a whole in the way that he came to study it on an individual basis with respect to Goethe. The idea came to him of tracing three thousand years of Western cultural life such that it everywhere becomes apparent how everyday events and facts existing in the physical world Acquire their true worth by being transformed through human minds and sensibilities into what the human soul experiences when it ascends to the realm of what Hermann Grimm called the creative imagination. Thus, Hermann Grimm became an historical observer of a quite distinctive kind. For him, history was something entirely different than it was for all other observers of history. History is usually studied in such a way that one assembles documents and other materials and then tries to present a picture of human evolution out of these materials. For Hermann Grimm, materials of this kind, outward facts, were indeed highly important, but not the main thing. He frequently had the thought running through his mind, could it not be that for a particular period of time, precisely the most important documents those that are decisive if one wants to study the impulses of the age, have disappeared without a trace and have been lost, so that if one considers documents to give the most exact, the most faithful picture, one will for the most part miss the truth? He was therefore convinced that someone who has the greatest faith in outward documents is least able to give a true picture of human evolution. In Hermann Grimm's view, Only a false picture of human evolution could emerge if one relies on outward documents. But there is another whole facet of the cultural life of mankind. What has occurred outwardly, what has taken place in the form of outward facts, has come to a spiritual rebirth in particular individuals. It has found expression in those personalities who have transformed it artistically, who have given it cultural and spiritual worth. Thus, for example, Heman Grimm looked at the time of ancient Greece. He said to himself, A number of documents exist about this Greek period. From these documents, the understanding that can be gained for the world of ancient Greece will be lacking in authenticity. But what the Greeks have experienced has been reborn in the works of Greek art. It has come to life again in particular Greek individuals. If one devotes one's attention to them one opens oneself up to the influence of the world of ancient Greece through the medium of the personality. And one will have a more faithful picture of this world than if one merely combines facts in an outward way. And so these facts, in a sense, disappeared for Hermann Grimm. One might say that they evaporated from his world picture. And what remained in his world picture was a continuing stream of what he called the creations of popular imagination. If, for example, he wanted to study Julius Caesar, he not only concerned himself with the historical documents, but he believed that what Shakespeare made of Caesar had just as much significance for Caesar as what can be found in the historical documents. He viewed the times through human beings. Not only that the course of human evolution became to him something that one personality always passed on to another, but the whole course of human evolution itself became to him a spiritual process, which he believed he had thoroughly dealt with in what he called the creative imagination. He wanted from this standpoint increasingly to acquire for himself a picture of the popular imagination creative in the Western cultures. He wanted to form a connection with the course of human evolution in the West, such that he could say to himself, as the various streams of the Western cultures merge with one another, as they become detached from the oldest times to which he wanted to go back, and extend to his own Gertian age, so do they appear as an ongoing stream of the weaving of popular imagination among the Western peoples. On the strength of this impulse, the focus of his attention was at an early stage, directed toward that magnificent manifestation of Western cultural life which concerned him for a while, and regarding which he wrote in the 1890s, a book unparalleled in its beauty, his Homer, his description of the Iliad. This book, which is always good to have around if one wants to study the early period of ancient Greece from a modern spiritual standpoint, again shows us Hermann Grimm, if we presuppose his general intellectual approach, from a quite particular aspect. His attention encompasses the gods and the world of the gods portrayed in Homer's Iliad. It takes in the battling Greek and Trojan heroes, and the question arises before his soul, how is it, then, with this interaction of a world of the gods with the ordinary human world of battling Greeks and Trojans? this becomes a question for him. He is struck by the immense difference that exists in Homer's descriptions between a humanity that roams the earth and those beings who are portrayed as immortal gods. And Hermann Grimm now tries to present the idea that the gods, as Homer portrays them, represent an older layer of beings inhabiting the earth. Even though Hermann Grimm in his more realistic way, sees these beings as, in quotes, human beings, he is, nevertheless, looking back to a culture which has become detached from another culture to which the Trojan and Greek heroes belong. Hermann Grimm discerns an older and a younger layer of humanity interacting in Homer's Iliad. And what remains of the living influences from a previously living layer of beings plays for Hermann Grimm into Homer's portrayal of what is enacted between Greece and Troy. In this way, Hermann Grimm altogether sees in the progress of human evolution a constant process of detachment of older, what we might call circles or cycles of culture, from newer ones, and an interplay of the old into the new every new cultural cycle has a certain task the task of bringing something new into the general evolution of mankind the old continues in existence for a while exerting its influence upon the new one could say that hermann grimm's insight into what must also be presented to-day from the standpoint of modern spiritual science extended as far as was possible for any one in the last third of the nineteenth century he did not go back beyond the age of ancient Greece. He was therefore unable to give what more recent spiritual research describes in reaching back to purely spiritual beings, higher than human beings, who existed before humanity. But he touched everywhere upon these results of more recent spiritual research, and as closely as anyone who has not himself come to embrace spiritual research can do so. In spiritual research, we try to represent the idea that when we go back in human evolution, we do not come to the animal kingdom, as the Darwinist theory, which is interpreted materialistically today, would have it, but that we come back to spiritual, purely spiritual ancestors of human beings, and that behind that cycle of humanity where human souls live incarnated in the physical body, we have another cycle of humanity. In which human beings are not yet incarnated in the physical body. Grimm, as it were, leaves unresolved the question as to the nature of the gods, in quotes, before human beings came to tread the earth. But he recognizes the lawful succession of such cycles of humanity. This gives a significant point of contact with the descriptions of spiritual research. That he altogether recognizes such regular advances, occurring over periods, brings him, so to speak, especially close to us. He sought to extend his cultural researches over three millennia. The first millennium for him is that of Greece. One could say that it sounds something like an undertone through Hermann Grimm's research, if one hears from him how he characterizes these Greeks in this way, when he says, yes, If one looks upon the Greeks, they appear to one, especially in the earliest period, as not so formed as present-day human beings. Even a person like Alcibiades still appears to one as a kind of fairy-tale prince. One is beholding something of a superhuman nature. And yet from this spiritual world of the Greeks, whom Hermann Grimm, as we have said, portrays as dissimilar to the later human world, Everything that gave rise to impulses in the world of the Greeks also projects into the later world, so that it forms the most important element within our cultural life, even to our modern times. And at the end of the first millennium that Hermann Grimm considers, there comes before his soul the most important impulse that he recognizes in the evolution of mankind, the Christ Impulse. When Hermann Grimm speaks about the figure of Christ, he is, in a certain sense, reserved, as he is altogether reserved about many things. But the observations that he generally makes about Christ show us that he would just as little agree with those who, so to speak, would like to make Christ evaporate in a cloud of thoughts, as with those who want to see in the personality of Christ Jesus only something of a generally human nature. He emphasizes that a twofold impulse proceeds from the figure of Christ, an impulse of colossal strength, which then also for Hermann Grimm continues to work through the whole of the rest of human evolution, and the other impulse of an immense gentleness. Hermann Grimm finds that the whole second millennium of Western cultural development is shaped in such a way that the world of ancient Greece is as though absorbed by the Christ impulse, and with this combination of Christianity and Greek thought, now enters into the human world, overpowers it, and brings forth something quite special. This is his second millennium, the first Christian millennium. The impulses of Rome are not of primary importance for him, whereas those of Christianity are. Everything political, everything outwardly matter-of-fact, disappears for Hermann Grimm's perception. And he everywhere examines how the Christ impulse makes its presence felt, and how diversified is its form. Thus his conception of Christ is not narrow, not small, but wide. When the book about the title Life of Jesus by Ernest Renan appeared, Hermann Grimm followed this up with a remarkable study in the journal that he published at that time, titled Künstler und Kunstwerk, Artists and Works of Art. He tried to show how pictorial representations of the figure of Christ have changed over the centuries, both in painting and sculpture and also in literature. Does he try to show the variability, the changeability of the Christ impulse? and he showed how people have always conceived of the Christ impulse in accordance with the way they thought about things. And he then sees in Ernest Renan someone who in the 19th century endeavored to conceive of Christ from a certain narrow point of view. Christianity, thinks Hermann Grimm, needed a thousand years in order to transmit its impulses to the rivulets and streams of Western cultural life. Then came his third millennium, the second Christian millennium, in which we now still are, that millennium at the beginning of which spirits such as Dante and Giotto were active and artists like Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci, Raphael, and so on, and which led then to the spiritual achievements of Shakespeare and Goethe. These cycles in the evolution of humanity were, for Herman Grimm, always defined wholly in accordance with spiritual laws. He perceived spiritual laws governing human evolution, whose on-flowing stream he identified in the nature of creative imagination. In his lectures, Hermann Grimm ever and again sought to place the organizational principle of the stream of human evolution before his students, in order to be able to show how individual spiritual creativity has its place in the totality of the stream. Thus Michelangelo, Raphael, Savonarola, Shakespeare, and others, also Goethe, were to him a spiritual content that can be explained if one sees it against the background of that onflowing stream of creative imagination, which for Hermann Grimm became especially discernible in its source in Homer in the ninth or more likely the 10th century before the Christian era. For this reason, Hermann Grimm addresses one on such an unfathomable level, because he often, when he evokes in one an interest in a work of art, for example, Raphael's titled Marriage of Mary and Joseph, one of the Madonna pictures or other works, one of Leonardo da Vinci's pictures, or when he points out something that he has observed in Goethe, gives one the feeling that one is experiencing what is most directly individual about this work of art. If one now observes with him how the particular color or gesture has been depicted in the work of art, and in this way believes oneself to be standing in isolation before the work of art, something like a tableau of the whole progress of humanity suddenly appears, a part of that ongoing stream of creative imagination that extends over three millennia, and includes within itself all the various individual elements. Thus one is led by Hermann Grimm into the intimate individual nature of the works of art concerned, and then to the summit from where the whole stream can be observed. However, this was not something that Hermann Grimm viewed in a theoretical way. It seemed to be something so natural for him to behold in this way the totality of the onflowing spiritual stream of human evolution, as he explained to me, as I said, at the time when we shared a midday meal, because he really lived with his whole soul in this spiritual stream, and he could by no means perceive a single phenomenon other than as a fragment of this mighty stream of the evolution of mankind. That the whole of Western cultural evolution is a development of popular imagination was to him no general abstract idea, but was full of the most tangible content. He knew himself to be so connected with his soul, with this content, that radiates through millennia, that everything that he wrote actually appears to one as the separate little sections and extracts of a work of vast proportions even if one reads no more than a review of one of his books. One has the impression that it has been extracted from a colossal work which presents the whole of human evolution as an imaginative creation. One feels oneself to be placed before a work of vast proportions as if one had embarked on it and was reading just the first few lines of it when one reads an article or essay or anything from a book by Hermann Grimm. And one now understands how Hermann Grimm himself could say, when, toward the end of his life, he wrote the preface to his collection of fragments, that to him it appeared that they contained a description of the whole of Western culture. One understands that the individual work that he has undertaken seemed to be one of several individual parts that he had taken from a finished work. Thus he never attributed more value to what he had published than to what he had written and never more value to what he had written than to everything that lived in his thoughts. When one indicates something of this kind, one would, without involving abstract formulations, want to have said something about that feeling that, as someone who has been and still is fond of Hermann Grimm, one has about the fact that he was never able to arrive at the point of really carrying out what so beautifully, so hugely and so magnificently stood before his spirit, that even his writings on Homer, on Raphael, Michelangelo and on Goethe appeared to us as fragments from this unwritten, all-encompassing work. It is with a certain melancholy feeling that one can read those lines of the introduction already mentioned to his title, Fragments where he states that he was constantly revising what he had to say to his students year after year about the evolution of European cultural life, and that it might perhaps be permissible to turn the last form that this, these lectures had received into a book which would, in a certain sense, represent the progress of European cultural development, but that, unfortunately, there would probably not be another of these revisions. One reads these lines today, all the more wistfully, since this revision indeed did not come about. And we have to see Hermann Grimm dying in the knowledge of what lived in his soul, and have had to see that what lived in his soul for the culture of the present had to go with him to the grave. This gives us some idea of the viewpoint from which everything of Hermann Grimm's was written. If spiritual research wants to be that which can be attained through the expanding of one's range of vision, one must say that anyone who truly enters into Hermann Grimm's mind and manner of expression has the most perfect guidance from modern cultural life for gradually entering into the whole mode of perception that belongs to spiritual research. But even if the breadth of Hermann Grimm's range of vision is disregarded, and one seeks to gain insight into his soul, into how he sought to approach phenomena, how his feelings and thoughts led him to everything that he has written in his extensive studies of Homer, Raphael, Michelangelo and Goethe. And if one takes into consideration what he has presented in his other writings, one finds that he can, to a significant degree, be distinguished from other spirits, and that he has something that belongs to that deepening of the soul that was spoken of here when the path was described that the soul has to take in order to enter the spiritual worlds themselves. We have already emphasized that the intensity of the soul forces must become stronger for the spiritual path, that if deeper soul forces are to be drawn forth which otherwise slumber, the soul must employ more inner strength, more inner courage and boldness must identify itself more with its own being, with the forces of thinking, feeling, and will. Hermann Grimm wrote a constant flow of essays to this end. Essays that, it is true, took a different course, essays through which he became able to describe works of art in so intimate and personal a way, as he described those of Raphael or Michelangelo, but was on the way to gaining deeper insight into the spiritual world. For it is not that which one calls objective today that lies at the foundation of Hermann Grimm's historical research, but rather an affinity with the phenomena of the cultural life that he is depicting. Thus he immerses himself in the respective cultural themes, in complete self-forgetfulness, and yet in a strange way possessed of self-consciousness. This is especially apparent when he first leads his own soul to focus on a particular cultural figure, for example on Raphael, and then raises this single cultural phenomenon to the collective stream of human cultural life. His feelings then become bold, mighty ideas, and what many others did not dare to express in such nuances of feeling and in such nuances of ideas is achieved by Hermann Grimm, who thereby becomes an interpreter of the Spirit who so impresses us with the boldness of his interpretations that we are sometimes truly reminded of those who wrote the Gospels. It is only that they wrote with more of a mystic quality and Hermann Grimm with more modern spiritual observation. And just as they reach up to the horizon of the whole of humanity, so does Hermann Grimm with his Raphael reach up to the horizon of humanity as a whole. It is wonderful when, in his bold way, as though his soul is being drawn out of itself and is striding along beside Raphael, as in a stream of general development, he breaks out in words that can express more to us than a mere description of world history. Quote, Raphael is a citizen of world history. He is like someone from the four rivers that, as the ancient world believed, came from paradise. Close quote. When one dwells upon such phrases as this, one indeed knows something quite different about the relationship of Hermann Grimm to Raphael than one otherwise knows about the relationship of many other interpreters to particular phenomena. Thus, for Hermann Grimm, personalities flow together with the total stream of cultural life. One could also say that he brings the highest spiritual sphere down to the most personal element, and a wealth of spiritual experiences come toward us when Hermann Grimm speaks the following words from the depths of his soul, as he gives expression to how he relates to the cultural realities with which he is concerned. Were Michelangelo called forth by a miracle from the dead in order to live among us again, and were I to meet him? I would reverently stand aside so that he might pass. But if I were to encounter Raphael, I would go behind him to see whether I might find an opportunity to hear a few words from his lips. With Leonardo and Michelangelo, one can confine oneself to relating what they were to their times. With Raphael, one must speak about what he is to us today. Over those others a gentle veil has been laid, but not over Raphael; he is one of those whose growth is not yet at an end, by a long way. There will always be future races of people to whom Raphael will pose new riddles. Close quote Steiner again. This is a characteristic mood, not objective in the sense that one so often demands today, but describing the corresponding phenomena in such a way that we feel directly drawn into their proximity when we are able to feel a breath of what was living in Hermann Grimm's soul when he could write such sentences. Then one also understands how this spirit was able to struggle with the phenomenon of world history and specifically with Raphael. It is remarkable, as he himself asserts, how he related to Raphael quite differently to how, for example, he expressed himself when he wanted to give a description of Michelangelo. The Portrayal of Michelangelo's Life by Hermann Grimm is a wonderful book, in spite of the fact that in many ways it can perhaps be regarded as superseded today. How significant the figure of Michelangelo appears in the context of the whole life of the Middle Ages, how it stands out from the other figures who feature prominently how it stands out from the wholly unique description of Florence itself, or how it stands out from that tableau that Hermann Grimm presents by letting two spiritual forms rise up before our mind, Athens and Florence, thus enabling the interweaving of the three millennia that he has characterized to appear as a mighty background against which figures such as Dante, Giotto and the other painters of that time stand out, then figures such as Savonarola and finally Michelangelo himself. From all this the impression also arises that Hermann Grimm might have related differently to Raphael and his surroundings than he did to Goethe, but that what he has to say to us is no less intimate. With Hermann Grimm's portrayal of Goethe, we always feel that he grew up as a spiritual grandson of Goethe. Likewise with his portrayal of Michelangelo, we feel that he is personally involved in everything, that he, one might say, personally goes to every palace in Florence, walks through all the streets of Florence, personally becomes familiar with other connections, and by placing himself before Michelangelo, then comes to be able to portray what he did. But we feel everything he painted as though as a unified whole. What he gave about Raphael has a different quality. We feel here a struggle with the subject matter, with the spiritual image. We feel that Hermann Grimm can never do enough as far as he is concerned. He says himself that he had taken up the material again and again, that nothing that he had already published satisfied him. Indeed, what he in the end tried to offer as a portrayal of the personality of Raphael, which nevertheless remained a fragment, and then appeared in the collection of essays as titled Raphael as a World Power, from which the sentences that I have already read out, derive, was to be among his last works. Why did Hermann Grimm so struggle with the material that he had on Raphael? Because he could only present something to his own satisfaction when he was able to be completely at one with the subject matter. But in Raphael, he saw a spirit whom he characterized in the way that the words previously quoted indicate, quote, Raphael is a citizen of world history. He is like someone from the four rivers that, as the ancient world believed, came from paradise, close quote. And so Raphael himself grew for him into someone of giant stature with every sentence that he addressed to him unless he could never do enough in his own eyes, because he could not himself capture this world power, in quotes, in a book. If, in his portrayals of Homer, Michelangelo, or Goethe, the breadth and yet the elegance of his mind manifests itself, with Raphael the deep uprightness, the deep honesty of this spiritual personality comes to the fore. Anyone who takes up his book about Homer may well find it insufficiently erudite. Hermann Grimm says on the very first page that this book is not intended as a contribution to research on Homer. Yes, Hermann Grimm could in these and similar matters behave absolutely like an intellectual prince, as I have previously related. Thus it also appears to one to be quite natural that when he set about assembling his ideas for what he wanted to say about Goethe, He boldly proceeded from the viewpoint that everything else that he had been able to find about Goethe was inadequate. What may to many appear as brazen audacity seemed, in the context of his literary and artistic attitude, to be perfectly natural. This is how he related to all cultural life. Hence, to many people who proceed from a scholarly standpoint, Hermann Grimm's book on Homer may be insufferable. Everything that has been said with regard to whether Homer lived or not, whether the title Iliad was put together from all manner of different elements and so on, was of no concern of his. He took it as it was. He therefore made a point of saying how wonderfully it was inwardly composed, how the later part always relates to what goes before so that everything that reveals this inner composition appears to us to be inwardly coherent. But apart from this, what seems to me of the greatest stature is something that is enormously valuable for a spirit researcher, his absorption in the soul life of the Homeric heroes. Everywhere we see Hermann Grimm's soul-filled approach to the soul life of Homer's heroes. Everywhere we see a real understanding, in a world historical context, of the soul of Achilles, of Agamemnon, of Odysseus, and so on, a book that works overwhelmingly as a description of souls despite the intimacy of the stylistic manner of expression. We are throughout led not only to the heights of historical study, but we are also led deeply into the souls of the individual Homeric figures. Indeed, many scholars may well say that Hermann Grimm has dealt with the Iliad by failing to take account of the whole of Homer research and all proper previous work, and has then taken everything as it stands. This is indeed what he does. It is all rather, in quotes, amateurish, and one might characterize it by means of the dry formula this man has written a book without any previous study. Did Hermann Grimm write this book without any previous study? Anyone who concerns himself with Hermann Grimm's intellectual life will find these previous studies, even though they appear different to all the prior studies of ordinary scholars. Hermann Grimm's prior studies lay in studies of souls, in immersing himself in the human soul and its mysteries. And one can come to the conviction that no one else would have so wonderfully been able to shed light on the souls of the Homeric heroes than the one who had undertaken such previous studies. Hermann Grimm is seemingly searching for what was uppermost in Homer's imagination. But what he says everywhere shows us a bearer of the most refined psychological insight, from whom we can presume to find something really extraordinary when we see the way that he observes the Homeric heroes from Achilles and Agamemnon to Odysseus. How did he come to write many a word in his book on Homer or in his other works that strikes the spirit researcher as so remarkably inspired? It was because it was preceded by quite particular prior studies. And the spirit researcher will look for these prior studies in the works from Hermann Grimm's first period. Here we have, above all, that wonderful collection of novellas, which are perhaps less read today than many books of this kind, but ought to be read by those who are interested in spiritual life. A collection of novellas, which can be thought of as an intensive attempt to get to know human souls, to fathom human mysteries, to establish the working of the human soul in the context of the physical world. Here is the first of these novellas, which appeared in the first period of his creative work as an author, titled The Zengerin, The Singer. It shows how a man begins to feel a passionate inclination toward a woman, a woman with an enveloping spiritual nature. We are shown how these two personalities are never able to come together, how the woman dismisses the ardently loving man from her society How in the soul of this man everything lives on in the form of impulses which on the one hand draw him to the woman who on the other hand from her soul drains the strength from the whole bodily nature of this man. In what one might call a form of spiritual research we see how he falls into a state of soul infirmity and then we see him again when he has been received at the estate of a friend entangled in the net of the woman. The friend notices that it is high time for that personality, for whom his friend yearns with all his soul, to be drawn to the scene. She comes, but too late. While she is in front of the house, the person concerned shoots himself. And now comes something that Hermann Grimm has so often touched upon in his artistic expositions, but which, at the point where it could well be taken up by spiritual research, he always has to let it lapse into indefinite ponderings. It is now briefly and succinctly described how the dead person is living in the imagination of the singer. There is an unforgettable scene where she, who feels her full guilt for the death of this man, sees this person come night after night from the kingdom of the dead, and these visitations of the one who has died now become the sole content of the woman. This is described not as a mere imaginative construct, but as by a man who knows that there are mysteries that extend beyond a person's death. There is a wonderful description where the friend is standing in front of the woman, where she says that the dead person is coming to her, until the woman's last letter to the friend, in which she says that she now feels herself to be close to death, that the dead person with whom she was so connected has from his realm of the shades drawn her into his domain. Perhaps there is no modern writer who has with such intimacy found the words with which to make contact with the spiritual world. It is described in spiritual research that when a person goes through the gates of death, that which otherwise remains connected with him also when he is asleep, the so-called etheric body, rises out of the physical body, together with the higher soul members, and passes over into the spiritual world. On the basis of spiritual research, we form a picture of how the corpse remains behind, how the person then, with his etheric body, becomes separated, piece by piece, section by section, from the physical body, and how the etheric body then, for a while, provides the sheath for the person's higher soul members. This is an idea that can become ever more familiar to those who have some knowledge of spiritual research. In what follows, we shall now consider in what wonderful a way Hermann Grimm's artistic soul forms a relationship with these facts of the spiritual world. And this will similarly lead us to the question why, for deeper reasons, Hermann Grimm did not bring his cultural studies to fulfillment in a substantial work. Apart from his novellas, Hermann Grimm wrote another artistic work, the novel titled überwindliche Mächte, Insuperable Powers, in which, as is generally the case in his writings, we encounter the elevated style that everywhere guides us toward a way of observing life in the world. Moreover, everything else is on a high-flown level, especially what one might call the collision of two ages of mankind at a microcosmic level. The one world is that which abides only by titles, ranks, and official positions, and feels itself at one with them. From this world there derives a count from an ancient family who is impoverished, but who still lives wholly in the reverberation and residual feeling of his rank as a count. It is wonderful how in this novel the world of old prejudices and ordering of ranks is contrasted with the new world. The outlook of America plays into this situation. It is Americans who encounter the man who lives wholly in his titular prejudices and sensibilities and whom Hermann Grimm calls Arthur. This count meets Emmy, the daughter of Mrs. Forster, who has American origins, and we see this count inflamed with passionate love for Emmy. It is impossible to do justice to the rich content of this novel we are confronted with the whole contrast between Europe and America, the whole contrast between the old Prussian nature and its new qualities engendered as a result of the wars, a hugely significant cultural tapestry within which the characters are imprinted and from which they continue their development. It suffices to mention that through the impulses that come together from these various streams, Count Arthur dies a tragic death, just as he is about to marry Emmy, a person who belongs to his ancestral family, but who, in his delusion, considers himself to be the rightful heir of the Count's estate and views the true heir, the Count Arthur, as a bastard, comes to meet Count Arthur spurred on by envy and jealousy, and the circumstances are such that on the eve of his wedding Count Arthur is shot by this man. One may perhaps never find an opportunity to consider the words insuperable powers, which many who want to view this novel purely rationalistically may perhaps regard merely in terms of the impossibility of finding a bridge between the prejudices of rank to be more justified than when one sees how Grimm, without intending to do so lets the idea of karma, the idea of the causal linking of destinies that come to expression in human life form connections, knot by knot and brings them to a development and how he indeed portrays forces that can only exert an influence if they derive from former incarnations, from previous earthly lives. He describes this not by speaking theoretically of forces, in quotes, or of karma, in quotes, but simply by letting the facts speak and giving expression to these powers, so that they seem to us in every way like the ideas of spiritual research. We see a karmic destiny being fulfilled. We see insuperable... Karmic powers coming to expression, and we see something else. In a short concluding chapter, Hermann Grimm shows us how Emmy gradually ails and how she dies. The way that he describes Emmy's approaching death is so utterly characteristic of Hermann Grimm's deep sympathy with soul spiritual problems. She is brought to Montreux. Montreux itself is described in a quite distinctive way. The whole area within which Emmy dies is described. However, he describes Emmy's death not like another writer who is far removed from spiritual life, but as someone who goes to where the mysteries of death and the mysteries of the land beyond death speak to souls. And I would be offering something incomplete if I were not to conclude with the words that Hermann Grimm himself includes about Emmy's death. Quote, And this is Emmy's dream. Between midnight and morning she believed she woke up. Her first glance at the window, through which a subdued brightness streamed in, was free and clear, and she knew where she was. She also heard her mother, who was sleeping beside her, breathing. A moment later, however, and with a pressure that she had never felt before, she was seized with an overwhelming fear. These were no longer those particular thoughts that had been tormenting her in recent days but it was as though a giant hand was holding all the mountain ranges of the earth over her by a thin thread, and at any moment the fingers that held it could open and the great weight plummet down, thus remaining lying upon her for eternity. Her attention wandered around both within and outside her, looking for a shimmer of light, but nothing presented itself. The light from the window had faded. Her mother's breathing was no longer audible she was surrounded by a stifling loneliness, as though she would never again return to the land of the living. She wanted to call out, but she could not. She wanted to touch herself, but no limb obeyed her. It was quite still, quite dark. Not even thoughts could be grasped in this terrible anxiety. She was even deprived of her memory. Then a thought finally came to her. Arthur! And now, wonderfully. It was as though this one thought, had been transformed into a point of light that became visible to her eyes. And in the measure that the thought grew to a boundless longing, this light came and increased in intensity, and suddenly as though became diffused and opened out and took on a new form. Arthur stood before her. She saw him. She finally recognized him. He was indeed himself. He smiled and was close beside her. She did not see whether he was naked or whether he was clothed, but it was he. She knew him too well, he himself, no mere phantom that had taken on his form. So closely does Hermann Grimm draw him, who some time before crossed the threshold of death, to her, who becomes a seeress, draws her in the moment of her own death to the dead person, in such a way that she addresses his soul, Quote, she did not see whether he was naked or whether he was clothed, but it was he. She knew him too well. He himself, no mere phantom that had taken on his form. Close quote. Quote again, he reached out his hand to her and said, "Come." Never had his speech sounded so sweet and enticing as it did today. With all the strength of which she was capable, she tried to stretch out her arm to him, but she could not. He came still closer and reached out his hand closer to her. "'Come,' he said again. It seemed to Emmy as though the power with which she tried to bring at least one word to her lips would have been capable of moving mountains, but she was unable to utter this one word. Arthur looked at her, and she at him. Had there now been the possibility of moving a finger, she would have been able to touch him, and now the most terrible thing happened— he seemed to draw back again. Come, he said for the third time. And feeling that he had spoken for the last time, that the terrible darkness would again engulf his heavenly appearance, now filled with a fear that tore her asunder as frost splits trees, she made a last attempt to extend her arms to him. But it was impossible to overcome the heaviness and cold that kept her in bondage. And then, as a bud bursts from which a blossom grows before our eyes, from her arms other arms radiated forth, from her shoulders other shoulders shone forth. And these arms reached toward Arthur's arms, and he grasped her hands with his hands, and as he slowly glided back he drew her after him, together with the whole glorious form that rose up from Emmy's being. Close quote. One cannot more wonderfully describe the departure of the etheric body from the physical body if one undertakes such a description with a pure artistic soul. We may well say of the spirit, the soul that lived in Hermann Grimm, that it came close to what we seek with such longing in spiritual research. This was a soul, this was a spirit, of which we may say that it serves as a proof of how the modern soul in its approach to the twentieth century has sought the paths to the spiritual life. Thus we gladly turn to Hermann Grimm, whom we observe to be on the path that we want to explore further. And so we see how he raises up the creations of Raphael and of Michelangelo, the experiences of Goethe and the Greek soul of Homer, to the stream that flows through the millennia for his spirit as creative imagination and we know how close Hermann Grimm was with his whole feeling and sensibility to the living, weaving, and working of the soul-spiritual world that is behind all physical realities. For when Hermann Grimm speaks of his creative imagination, this is not something of an abstract nature. Insofar as we are, perhaps, with him, dealing with something in the abstract realm, it is also for us a necessity that we break through the thin wall that separates Hermann Grimm from the living spirit, which does not work as creative imagination, but lives behind everything of a sensory nature as a direct spiritual influence. It has the aspect of a modesty that does not yet venture to say more than it says when we see Hermann Grimm speak of the imagination of mankind working through the millennia, since as an artist he was nevertheless so closely in touch with a living soul that has crossed the threshold of death. Thus it will not be difficult for us to see, where Hermann Grimm speaks of the creative imagination, the living spiritual beings that we as spirit researchers seek behind the world of the senses. It will then perhaps not appear unjustified if we do assert that for such a spirit who has so honestly and uprightly struggled for the truth. This creative imagination, when he sought to approach it ever and again, was nevertheless to him something of an abstraction, that his soul had the urge to comprehend the living spirit, and that therefore the great work that he intended could not come into being, because if it had been written, it would have to have become a work that would have had to portray the spiritual world not merely as creative imagination, but as a world of creative beings and individualities. Spiritual research has not been arbitrarily instituted by this or that person in recent times, but is demanded by the seeking souls of the modern age, to whom Hermann Grimm so clearly and characteristically belonged, as we have seen. Thus, in the case of this remarkable personality, we can become aware that with spiritual research we are not alien and isolated in modern cultural life. We have been enabled to view a figure such as Hermann Grimm as someone to whom we feel related. Even though he does not fully share our viewpoint, we stand, or at any rate could stand, infinitely close to him. And when contemplating such a figure, it is also better to take account not so much of every detail but rather of the totality, to look upon it with all that harmony of soul, with all that gentleness, and yet also bold sharpness and strength of soul life with which it is able to impress us. Even though we may address this or that vital question in a somewhat different way to Hermann Grimm, I know that it is not wholly foreign to his style if I summarize what I have wanted to express. One might arrive at the thought, shall we say the delusionary thought, that can then live in the soul as a beautiful delusion. If higher spirits, extraterrestrial spirits, wanted to become acquainted through reading, through lectures, with what happens on the earth, they would prefer to read writings such as those in which Hermann Grimm has recounted the earthly destiny of human beings. This feeling can sound forth to one from virtually every line of Hermann Grimm's writings, and this feeling raises one's whole personality to what one might call an extraterrestrial sphere. One then feels so close to this personality that were one to want to characterize what has been said today about Hermann Grimm, one may become aware of some beautiful words that he himself addressed to a friend who had died, his friend Treitschka, whom he greatly appreciated. Quote, How gladly this man embraced life! How courageous in battle! how language offered itself in service to him, how his latest book always had the quality of novelty. How little could even those who, in the bustle of cultural communication, had a taste of his pushiness, take offense at him. Even they will cry, Yes, he was one of us. These words were at the same time the last that Hermann Grimm wrote and had printed as we know from the publisher of his works, Reinhold Steig. And I should like to summarize and probably also conclude what I have said this evening with the words how gladly this man, Hermann Grimm, embraced life, how gently, yet also how individually, and what a harmonious impression his whole life's work makes, how language offered itself in service to him, how his latest book always had the quality of novelty. How little can even those who do not share His ideas and viewpoints distance themselves from Him, if only they properly understand themselves. And how close must those who, from whatever area of spiritual research, seek the path to the Spirit, feel to Him. How close must these people feel to Him, and how dearly they would like if His spiritually so gently radiant form were to appear before them, to burst forth with the words, yes he was one of us the end of lecture 8